0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Watch Arts podcast. I'm Hamza. As usual, I'm accompanied here by Charles, but we also have a special guest today from the Armory. We have with us today Mark Cho. Hi, Mark. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Thanks for joining. Uh, we have a topic that uh, you've done some work on in the past, and we thought it would be great to kind of extend uh, that discussion and see where we can take it forward jump into a little bit of a, a data dive, data deep dive and um, just see what interesting observations we can come up with. So we're going to be talking about uh, ideal watch size and ideal, well, not ideal wrist size, I suppose, but you know, based on a survey of users, we found uh, the wrist sizes of respondents to be. Uh, and then we'll dig into some of the data that we have, both from the market and just on watches in general. Before we get into that, we'll just start off with a wrist check. Charles, what do you have on?
1: So I'm wearing my Rolex Yacht-Master Reference 116622. And I think this is actually a pretty suitable watch for this conversation because, I mean, it's a 40 millimeter watch, but what really drew me towards it is how much thinner it is compared to like a Submariner or a Daytona or something like that. Uh, and the case is uh, much more curved. And it's more of a like fluid rather than a blocky case design. I think that adds to the wearability. So I've tried on subs. I've tried on GMTs. I still feel like for my wrist, which is about 6.5 inches, uh, the Yachtmaster in 40 millimeters just wears better than all of those.
0: And then do you have any watch that you're obsessing over right now?
1: Yeah, um, I guess the 5726 uh, paddock annual calendar uh, on the bracelet. I've talked about this watch before. I mean, I think it's one of the, you know, best sized, uh, sporty annual calendars that is out there. And I mean, obviously, it's incredibly expensive, but it really is, in my mind, a class of its own in terms of the wearability and the practicality of such a, you know, high end complication.
0: Cool. Uh, Mark, what do you have on?
2: Uh, I am in quarantine in Hong Kong, so I haven't really been wearing my watches around, um, but I have kept my Patek 3970 on the table the entire time. Um, So 3970 is a perpetual calendar chronograph. Uh, It's been discontinued. It was made in a smaller size. It was made in a 36 millimeter size. Actually, I think think 36 or 35, I forget. Um, And, you know, with perpetual calendars, obviously you want to try and keep them wound so that you don't have to reset a bajillion date windows and
0: whatnot. Uh, and that's why it's on my table, but I love this watch. I'm really happy with it. And then I I know you said earlier, the answer to your question of what watch is on your mind is also the same watch. So, uh, did you, how did you end up with this in quarantine? Were you just traveling with it? Or
2: I was traveling with it. I've been, I've actually had this watch for, for a while now. Um, but you know, there's a lot of things in my collection that I, I kind of collect and then they sit aside for a little while and then eventually they work, work their way into, into my daily routine. Um, and actually because uh, i don't think i've told you guys i am selling almost everything this year uh no and way so yeah so there's actually going to be an auction i can't reveal too many of the details but there's gonna be an auction for my stuff uh q4 and i can't say who it's with or when it is exactly but there will be a lot of my stuff uh available for sale
0: Charles and I have had the privilege of seeing some of your watches in New York when we met for the first time last year, uh, and you were gracious enough to share. Like, that is a wild collection. I'm pretty excited to hear that. I'm curious what made you decide to sell the collection?
2: I want to try and buy a shop in New York. Um, Like, physical retail is actually relatively cheap depending on the area, and so I kind of have my eyes on a few properties uh, and I want to see if I can get one of them. So I got to raise some cash.
0: How do you feel about letting go of the watches you've accumulated over the years?
2: It's a, it's a weird one for sure. It's a very weird one. Uh, you know, there's stuff that I've had for like a decade that, you know, I bought it for nothing and now it's worth so much money that much as I love it. I, I don't even feel comfortable wearing it anymore. Um, And then there's stuff that just I haven't been wearing that much anyways. So the way I've picked what I'm selling is basically if I'm not wearing it that much, I'm just, I'm just going to sell it. It just comes down to that, you know, rarity aside or expense aside at the end of the day, like I, I want to own watches that I can wear frequently. And so what's not getting sold out of my collection is really just watches that I had had a hand in designing or watches that I'm still wearing, um, very frequently.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, best of luck with uh, with your search for real estate. Thanks, man. Uh, and, and I hope the auction goes well. I have on a Citizen Eco Drive caliber 0100 in titanium. This oh, is, sick. I love that watch. This is 37 and a half millimeters uh, across, nine millimeters thick, uh, solar powered, most accurate quartz movement in the world. Um, it felt summer appropriate, both because it is titanium and because it's solar powered. And here in Seattle, we're going through a bit of a heat wave. So, uh, But the one that I'm obsessing over right now, and uh, we might get into this a little bit later if we're talking about annual calendars and their thicknesses, is the uh, JLC Master Control Chronograph Calendar. It was updated this year to be available on a bracelet, which upped the price by a couple of thousand dollars. but. It's, a, it's an annual calendar chronograph that's in a 40 millimeter case that's only 12 millimeters thick. It seems to be the, it, to me, it feels like the epitome of classical watchmaking, as has always been characterized by JLC, fit for the 2020s. Uh, mm. And so it, it feels like the modern version of the watch that I might have wanted to buy if I were into watches 20 years ago. Mm, uh, and, was, and, was interested in, and was interested in buying a complication. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I think about it. I think it's beautiful. Um, yeah, it's just been an obsession on my mind for, for the last little while. Anyway, that done. Um, we'll, we'll come back to this watch. Uh, let's get into our main topic, which is wrist size and case size. So Mark, the reason we were very interested, obviously, in having this discussion with you is because you did a talk at the HSNY the horological society of new york where you uh gave a talk on the survey findings that uh you know you ran a survey for a couple of years maybe a little bit more um collecting information on wrist sizes and watch size preferences so can you help us maybe uh um, give a summary of, well yeah let's let's yeah. just maybe get us i'll let the me try findings. and i'll try and
2: i'll try and whip through it as fast as i possibly can so I ran this survey 2018 to 2021 uh, that was called the ideal wrist, uh, the ideal watch size survey. And actually it was a little bit of a red herring, like obviously there's no such thing as an ideal watch size. It's really more about people's preferences. Um, this survey was inspired by the fact that when I was talking to my customers in my shop, I would always hear my customers say, oh, I have a small wrist. and uh, in fact, I was hearing this like a disproportionate number of times, you know, typically when you hear, I have a small wrist, um, any sort of natural physical attribute should be distributed around a bell curve, right? You have a lot of people in the middle and they have some people who are small and some people who are large, but I was hearing it like 70, 80% of the time I was talking to my customers. So I decided to put the survey together and I collected data on firstly, what is your ideal wrist size? i uh, sorry. How do you perceive your wrist? Are, do you have a small average or large wrist? Then I asked for a wrist size measurement. And then I asked for uh, if you have like a primary watch that you tend to wear all the time, what is the diameter of that? And then if you have a secondary watch, uh, what is the ideal diameter of that? And those are the basically the, the four main questions for the survey. For wrist size perception in my survey, 49% of people said they had small wrists, 43% said they had average wrists, and only 8% said they had large wrists. Um, and this was out of 1,800 and something um, survey respondents. So clearly something is a little bit off about that. Like there shouldn't be this many people saying they have small wrists and so few people saying they have large wrists. Now, when I asked for people to provide their, their wrist size as a measurement, um, it was a very normal bell curve. You know, uh, the center is around 6.75, seven inches, and it kind of tapers off in both directions from there. In terms of ideal watch size, uh, surprisingly, uh, for people who wanted primary watches, uh, as in like the watch they wear to work all the time, the average was about 38 millimeters, but there was a very significant um, chunk of people who also wanted 36. Uh, so the distribution in this case also was not normal. Like there was this big chunk at 36, and then uh, a lot of people at 38, 39, 40, uh, and then just very low on all the other sizes. Uh, secondary watch was actually more normally distributed, so most people wanted to have a 40 millimeter secondary watch, um, which I would interpret this as like if you wanted uh, a sport watch for the weekend, you would want it to be 40 mini- millimeters typically. Um, and then I charted stuff like perceived and also measured wrist sizes versus uh, your ideal primary watch size. and you know, it seems so obvious, but I think it's worth stating, whether you perceive your wrist to be small or whether your wrist actually measures small, uh, you want a smaller watch and vice versa. As your wrist size increases, uh, the size of watch you want also increases. And that uh, is belied by the data for both uh, the primary watch and the secondary watch. And so I asked the question, like why, do so many people want? uh, Why do so many people perceive their risk size as small? And my theory for this, um, this kind of detours into behavioral economics. Um, So behavioral economics is a field of psychology and statistics and economics. And, uh, it talks about as one of the fundamentals of behavioral economics, it talks about the way when people's brains think about things um, that split into a system one and a system two. So a system one is like responsible for intuitive thinking. System two is responsible for critical thinking and system two is quite lazy. Uh, so it's hard to critically think about stuff. System one is always on. So it's really easy to jump to conclusions. Now, I mentioned this and believe me, I will actually get back to the average small and large risk size thing. I mentioned this because. Another really important part about the way you think is what we call the substitution effect. Um, so, substitution effect is what happens when you get presented with a problem that you can't quite answer, and you substitute in an easier question in its place, right? So, mm-hmm. when you are asked, for instance, something like, um, "How much money would you contribute to save an endangered species?" you don't really think about that question in all that much detail. You usually will just substitute something like, how much emotion do I feel when I think of a dying dolphin? Right? I think about one specific species, I think about my own personal emotion, and that's about it. You won't kind of survey, well, there are this many endangered species, I have this much money available, blah, blah, blah. Like, um, Or another example of this question is, how popular will the president be six months from now? And you usually don't think about the factors that will affect this person's popularity six months from now, you actually just analyze your current feeling about the president at this very second, right? And this is what I mean by the substitution effect. So in the case of watch sizes, I think what's happening is people actually don't have any idea what the average wrist size is, because wrist sizes are are visually actually a little bit hard to gauge and they're not something you pay attention to anyways. So what they're doing is they're actually taking the marketplace of watches and saying, Okay, That's the marketplace. And that stuff either does or does not fit me. If it doesn't fit me, I must be either too small or too large. And the chance of me being too large is pretty low. So I'm probably just too small. And I think that is how this whole story just ties together.
0: The other interesting thing I'm realizing is that we're also very constrained in how we talk about it because we're talking about Um, You know, a physical aspect of your physique, which can Mm -hmm. vary so widely from person to person, just because you have a seven inch wrist doesn't mean that the next person with a seven inch wrist is going to have, you know, the same sort of wearing experience for the exact same watch. Uh, because mm-hmm. their wrist may be shaped entirely differently. So I think we're like now starting to like, it's like you peel away the first layer, which is what does the watch size, you peel away another layer, which is, you know, what do you think your wrist size is? The next mm-hmm. layer is what is your actual wrist size? And then I think the further we, we start peeling away the layers of this onion, the, the question becomes much more interesting and it would be interesting to see how much of this can become feedback for product developers at watch brands. Mm-hmm. Um, But that's, you know, that's really, really kind of long-term thinking. Um, I wanted to pivot to talking about the fact that in preparation for this uh, discussion, what we did at Watch Arts is we just ran a quick survey for our Instagram audience where we asked essentially the exact same questions that... Um, Mark, you asked in uh, your survey. So mm-hmm. we collected some basic demographic information and then we asked for preferences between modern and vintage watches and then whether they consider their size, again, to be small, average or large. And what is their measured size, and then what is their mm-hmm. ideal watch size? So, um, Charles, you want to give maybe a quick summary of what we found in, in our survey, and then we can launch into talking about the discrepancies between the results from uh, from, from both surveys. We, we obviously can't do an oranges to oranges comparison, but uh, or an apples to apples comparison, I suppose. But um, this is, I think. Not quite an apples-to-oranges comparison. We tried to get as close as we could in terms of being able to talk about two disparate uh, sets of survey results. So, with you know, with that sort of high-level caveat um, out of the way, Charles, do you want to dig into this a little bit?
1: Right. So, obviously, there's some differences between the time in which this survey was these surveys were conducted, as well as the uh, nature of the audiences, but. At a high level, I think we have some really interesting results to share. So the first is that compared to Mark's audience, uh, the audience that we surveyed from our Instagram account greatly preferred modern watches more. So 45% of Mark's audience said they preferred modern watches, while 26% 26 of them preferred vintage. While for our audience, 78% of them preferred modern, while only 8% of them preferred vintage. And that also, this distinction, this difference, also translated when it came to the perception of risk size. For Mark's audience, forty-nine percent of people considered their risk to be small, which was, you know, sort of unexpected, right? But for our audience, it did follow more of a bell curve, where twenty-eight percent of the audience perceived their risk to be small, and fifty-nine percent of them perceived their risk to be average. Um, again, more people seem to prefer their risks uh, seem to perceive their risks to be smaller rather than larger. Um, for our audience, still only 13% of people said that they had large wrists. What gets really interesting is when you dig into the questions of what is your wrist size and what is your ideal watch size? And so there was basically not a distinguishable difference in the distribution of wrist size between Mark's audience and our audience. But yet Mark's audience seemed to perceive that the wrists were smaller and seemed to prefer more vintage watches. When it came to the ideal watch size though, there was a difference. Mark's audience seemed to prefer mostly 36 millimeter, 39 millimeter, 40 millimeter watches, whereas our audience um, gravitated more towards watches maybe between 39 millimeters and 42 millimeters. So to me, this shows that while there's not an objective difference in the actual wrist size of these populations, what is sort of driving these perceptions and um, maybe their purchasing or yeah, like purchasing motivations is the types of watches that they want. So if they're into vintage watches, they might that might be because they perceive their risk to be small and they feel that modern watches are too large and they're not suitable, and thus they go towards vintage. Also, because our audience prefers modern watches overwhelmingly. Um, they're probably starting out their research looking at, you know, the set of watches out there in the modern catalogs as a, as opposed to doing comparison shopping with vintage watches. And so watches in modern sizes, you know, 40, 41, 42 millimeter watches are all they see and all that they're used to. And so they say, you know, my, my wrist size is average because I think that, you know, these watches wear fine. These are sort of the average watches within the sample that I'm seeing. Sure. This is all I know almost. Right. Exactly.
0: And so how big was our sample size?
1: So for the questions of wrist size and ideal watch size, we sampled about 100 of our responses. Um, for the other questions that it was just easier to compile data for, I think we had about 2,200 responses.
0: I, I was just going to say, I feel like um, we, we tried to get as close as we could to recreating the same survey, but like it, 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 I feel like it's it's important to reiterate there there are a bunch of caveats. Just like as we talk about comparing these numbers um, from here on out, um, in, in addition to obviously the fact that you know the the, the responses uh, distributions are just so so different.
2: So I think that I think what drives the data is preference, right? I think what drives the difference in in our data is preference. Um, you guys have a group of people who prefer modern watches, potentially are looking only at modern watches, potentially are less experienced with watches. And so they are gravitating towards what they know best, which is what's currently in the marketplace 4042. And um, they're they're kind of judging uh, based on that. I think also what's interesting is you guys have done this survey like in the last 24 hours. I haven't updated my survey since 2021. And I started in 2018. And I think there's definitely been a shift in people's preferences, a shift in people's tastes, and a shift in the way people dress, for sure. I mean, I come from a background of clothing. And, you know, it used to be most people go to work in an office, and we go to work in an office, you have a particular dress code, and you wear things according to that particular dress code. And, um, you know, it wasn't that long ago, where I remember wearing a Submariner to an office job was a little bit controversial because people will be like, oh, you can't wear like that sort of sporty diving watch with a suit to work. That's crazy, right? Like it was seen as a very kind of cavalier avant garde sort of thing. Whereas today, a lot of us are working remotely. We're not even going to an office anymore. We're certainly not um, buying suits especially navy and gray suits in the quantities of that we used to you know i know this for for a fact because i work in this industry and so uh you're much more open to wearing these like more casual more modern watches and i i hope we can run this survey every year to continue to see how people's preferences change because preferences do change they have to change that's one of these kind of immutable things about people is that nobody will will keep an opinion forever. They will always change it depending on their circumstances.
1: Right. And so kind of leading into I think that leads really well into this question that I have, which is maybe over the last, you know, five, ten years, however long, you know, we've been in this space, we've been in collecting, what has sort of been our perception, or maybe Mark, we can start with you, what has been your perception about sort of the this trend of, you know, preference? For watch sizes, I think that um, definitely over the last few years, a lot of people, I think we've heard, you know, are saying that they want smaller watches. What's sort of been what you've seen based on your experience?
2: I so there, I have a few interesting takes on that. Um, I always believe in regression to the mean. I think that past forty two was probably a little excessive, so it will come back down to a more reasonable size, I would assume probably the days of like 31 to 33 millimeter men's watches are probably over. Um, but I think that the days of 36 to 38 can see a comeback. I think that collectors, uh, especially new collectors eventually gravitate to smaller case sizes because they realize that, oh, actually wearing a smaller watch is just more comfortable and kind of works in my life a bit better. And I've seen this time and time again, um, especially with collectors who've just started collecting in the last couple of years. Like they look at, like I meet up with them and they look at my watch like, oh, it's so small. Why would you wear that blah, blah, blah. But now like in the last 20, like in the last 12 months, they're like, oh man, you were right. Like I've been wearing more and more 37, 38 millimeter watches uh, and even thirty-six millimeter watches and I love it. You know, So guys who used to be buying, guys used to be buying, let's see, Uh, I guess guys who started in large modern pieces have now started going into vintage because that's where the case sizes that are interesting to them are available. And I think that, you know, brands have an opportunity to capitalize on that. And I think they are too, um, people like Grand Seiko, for instance, have finally started to release 36 and a half, 37, 34 millimeter watches in greater volume, which I think is awesome. And, let's take a uh, moment nope.
0: to let's take a moment to like run through some of Grand Seiko's um, recent hits. So there was the <laughs> pink, there was the pink dial, thirty-six and a half millimeter, forty-four GS case, uh, mm-hmm. which is now available in non-limited editions in the silver and brown dial. That's right. Um, there is obviously the SBGW two thirty one, the two thirty five, and then the three limited edition green dials they did in the U.S. last year, and then there's I think two. Uh, non limited edition uh, versions of that. There's a blue one and a green one that's available. Those are again, you know, the, the 37 point something uh, millimeter case. Um, so, you know, and then the 44GS is also available in a 40 millimeter size if you want the bigger case. But mm. there's so much variation at this 36 to 38 millimeter um, size range where with multiple cases and multiple dials, Grand Seiko has done so many different variations. And, and this is before you even mentioned the, the two 34 millimeter uh, quartz pieces that they did. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this was sometime late last year, one with a blue dial and one with a white dial, which yeah, is, again, right. it's not a mechanical movement, but they're beautiful, beautiful watches. And so if if that's the size that you are finding yourself gravitating towards as an enthusiast, uh, and we actually we actually looked up some data to, to back this up, uh, Grand Seiko, compared compared to other brands against which it would normally be compared has disproportionately more watches available at smaller case sizes and and i think that that that's reflected in the celebration that they receive from uh, from collectors and enthusiasts sorry that's that's the end of my grand sake of it no,
2: I think that's super interesting too, because actually it didn't even occur to me, I mean, it occurred to me before that, for instance, Rolex is the only major brand carrying 36 millimeter stuff. AP has a little bit in the Royal Oak in 34 and 37 Omega is virtually nothing. Uh, paddock has virtually nothing anymore, like in those sizes. And actually it's also interesting to see like small new independents getting into these smaller sizes too. Uh, like Kurono just released a 34 millimeter. And typically all the Kuronos have been 38 and less. Right. Um, now Yajida, 37. Baltic has been really good at doing some 36 millimeters.
0: Even your collaboration with Moser was at the newer, smaller case size of, I believe it's 38 millimeters.
2: Well, they, I, t- I asked them to make a smaller case size. I was like, I love what you guys do. you got to make a smaller one. So that is the physical limit of how small they can make a watch due to the movements that that's
0: use. great that yeah it's it's great that they you know they took that feedback and, and and downsized it but it and uh you know it it did well enough and it it i think it just reflects the fact that yeah people do want the smaller sizes
2: i think so, so. there's the a question- there's a treasure trove of people waiting you know
1: yeah the question that i'm interested in exploring is is going back to what you mentioned earlier mark about Sort of this collector journey right maybe people starting off with larger watches and then realizing over time that maybe they actually prefer smaller watches so to me i think there's two angles and obviously here like we're probably only talking about male collectors i mean the other thing is in both mark's survey and our survey uh like basically 99 percent of the participants were male but if you talk about sort of the male collector experience, I think there's maybe two factors at play here. The first is maybe what is the standard size of watch that is sort of in the mainstream that the collector is first exposed to when they start collecting? And maybe that's what defines or gives, you know, sort of their first impression of the, t- the size of watch that they might prefer. Mm. Um, the second, I think, is maybe this sort of idea of of masculinity, because I definitely think that, um, at least in the West, there's some pressure um, put on watch wearers, watch collectors, that, okay, if you're a male collector, you have to wear a large watch, you can't wear a 36 millimeter watch, because that's too feminine. Um, I've heard this sentiment um, expressed a lot, In, in fact, like, even by like authorized dealers of certain brands. Um, I was told, I, I remember I was at a boutique for a brand um, just a couple of weeks ago, and I told them I preferred watches that were between 38 and 40 millimeters. And they sort of looked at me like like I was crazy. Like what, you have a decent sized wrist, you can wear larger watches, don't limit yourself to 38 or 40. So, and, and, and these factors could even be connected, right? So maybe, I'm I'm curious how much, like based on what your perception is, how, how much of this is maybe based on the brands sort of market research and strategy in terms of, you know, the size of watches that they produce, are they choosing p- to produce larger watches maybe because that's, that's what they believe that, you know, the masculine male desires or is there, you know, some other factor at play?
2: I think that it is, um, I think this is all part of a pendulum swing in terms of product design and then the consumers following it. So I think what happened is in the nineties, um, Panerai hit the scene, got super popular thanks to Arnold Schwarzenegger and, um, Rocky, uh, Sylvester Stallone, right? Like all of a sudden that was like the cool masculine watch to wear and also fit the masculine image of the time, which was like, you want to be masculine? You got to be really chunky. You got to wear a chunky watch like that was that was like the look. Right. And then I think for a lot of brands who are trying to figure out what the hell are we going to design next? They saw Panerai success and they were like, OK, we can we can do that now, too. So everyone started to to upsize their watches because it's a very convenient way for a designer to make something new. It's like, OK, let's take the old one and just tweak it a little bit and make it bigger and bam, we got a new product we can sell. Everyone's excited. This will be great. And I think a lot of people just rode that gravy train for a long time, um, because consumers at the end, day, like consume, they want something new. And sometimes what's new doesn't actually have to be like, sometimes people don't think about something needing to be good. They just need it to be new. Uh, and I think we were stuck on that track for a long time and people kept designing larger and larger stuff until it hit like 44, 46, 48 millimeters. Uh, and then now, you know, we've kind of hit the limit of that pendulum and we're starting to swing back. Like designers are now like, okay, we need something new. Well, we were making those 46 millimeter things. Now what if we made a 42 millimeter version, of that 46 millimeter thing. And I think that's kind of the, the direction of the pendulum now is us regressing back to that smaller
0: mean. That's how you get a 43 millimeter big pilot. Well, I I don't know about the, I think the pilots are a tough
2: example to raise because in theory, all pilots watches should be quite oversized. Right. Um, and to be honest, like the other nuance to, to this, to my huge oversimplification of, of kind of the direction of things. Right. The other nuance is just like society culture, how you wear things has changed too.
1: Right. I think it's like I look at the Tudor Black Bay Fifty Eight, right? That's I think a watch that um, is a great example of I think collector tastes um, maybe shifting towards the smaller size. I mean, Tudor had you know the Black Bay collection for like five years before they launched the Fifty Eight, and you know the the major change was just you know a thinner case than the case that went from forty one millimeters to thirty nine millimeters and. I still remember in 2018 when that watch first came out. It really sort of, you know, just blew up. Like took over the watch world. That seemed like to be the watch that everyone wanted. Everyone was talking about. You know, for months and months. Um, it was not just like a you know like a like a short you know 15 minutes of fame type of thing. Um, and, you know, I think that proves that, you know, a lot of these brands have great designs, but maybe not at the size that people want. Um, For brands like, you know, IWC brands that make pilots watches. Yeah, definitely, you know, staying true to, I mean, 43 millimeters is probably small by, you know, a lot of standards for traditional pilots watches. But I think IWC is also, you know, making those watches even smaller. Now, I think they just came out with a 41 millimeter uh, chronograph with the in-house movement. And, you know, maybe that's their response to this type of trend is, you know, they have a good design, but it's just it needs to be wearable. Right. At the end of the day, um, the comfort of the watch, I think, makes a you know huge impact. You're, you're only going to put up with a watch that looks great, but it's uncomfortable to wear for a certain amount of time before you get tired of it.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. And in fact, I think this segues a little bit into into what's happening in really high horology, right? So if you look at people like F.B. Journe, grubel Forsey, or like the really high end in smaller independents as well, um, they are all going towards larger sizes because they wanna do unusual things that have never been done before with their movements. Right. So like F.P. Journe, for instance, with the vertical tourbillon, like if you're going to have a vertical tourbillon, it, the watch physically needs to be of a certain size or you can't even cram the tourbillon in. Um, or if you look at MBNF or you look at Grumman 4 and you have balance wheels at angles, um, you just you just need the movement to be bigger. And for people whose pursuit in life is like ever more complicated, complex and beautiful horology, um, I, I think it's great that they are, that they want to do these things, but in order to do them the watch needs to be bigger. And there's a definitely an audience and a market for that. It's not me personally, but I definitely appreciate it very much.
0: Yeah. Charles, did we dig into the data for watches that sell for let's say over 10,000 or over a hundred thousand, um, by case diameter and see like, does that actually also get borne out by the data? Are, are buyers just restricted at those price points from buying smaller watches because they just don't exist and are not being made?
1: Right, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that um, we were looking at is you know, what, based on, so based on the market prices that we track um, and the model specifications that we have, sort of what is the distribution of options uh, when it comes to different price points on the secondary market? And, yeah, it definitely seems like uh, it seems like it is the case that when you look at watches that are, you know, affordable watches, let's say like watches that are under uh, $1,000, it seems like you have a lot more options at the smaller case sizes, you know, 37, 38, 39. Um, there's a big spike at 40 millimeters and a big spike at 42 millimeters, which is what you would expect and which is also true for the more expensive watches. But it seems like you have plenty of options um, even around you know smaller case sizes, like I think we say that we have we have you know something like 400 watches in our catalog, um, priced under a thousand dollars that are 39 or 38 millimeters. Um, but then when you look at watches that are more expensive, watches that um, let's say are greater than ten thousand dollars or greater than ten or greater than hundred thousand um, dollars, the data tends to skew towards larger watches. So. At above $10,000, there's still a solid number of choices for 38, 39 uh, millimeter watches. And then there's a big spike again at 40 and 42. Um, and it's a similar story for watches above $100,000. I think what's also interesting is to look at what are the watches that are popular? What are, what are the watches that are seeing the most uh, you know, trans, transaction activity, right? What are the watches that people are actually buying? And um, in that case, you know, if you look at watches with let's say over a hundred sales that we track in our database then it's you know really just comes down to um at watches above ten thousand dollars you know brands like rolex so you see a ton of watches at 36 millimeter this is like your you know rolex day-dates date just oyster perpetuals um and then you see a ton of watches at 40 millimeters but suddenly if you filter for you know the popular watches that are actually being bought and sold now above $10,000, you really don't have a lot of options at 37, 38, 39 millimeters. You kind of have to choose between 36, which there are a healthy number of options for, and then 40 and above. Um, whereas that's, again, at the lower price points, you have a much more even distribution of options. So I'm not exactly sure you know, why this is the case. I mean, certainly the set of brands and collections available at higher price points is going to be more limited um, but, you know, maybe that's something that we can dig into a little bit here.
0: The other thing that this just straightforward comparison doesn't control for is proportion of three handers to complications. So at higher price points, you're likelier to see more complications than you are at lower price points.
1: Right. But on the subject of complications, I mean, Mark was just talking a little bit about high horology. I mean, to me, so, so I understand that, you know, watches would need to be larger in order to sort of push the limits of watchmaking, right? If you really want to do the most technically innovative stuff, then, okay, maybe it's just not technologically possible to do so at, you know, a wearable case size right now. You have to make the watch bigger. And, you know, that's that's okay. I think that that also leaves the, door open to maybe try to improve that technology and downsize it potentially down in the future, you know, sort of say that this is the initial version and we can try to make it more wearable later, more practical later. This is sort of a you know exercise and innovation right now. But I think on the flip side of it, when you look at high horology, you also get interesting trends like what's going on with the vacheron Constantine Overseas, where the overseas perpetual calendar is 8.4 millimeters thick. And then the overseas standard three-hander with a date is like 11 millimeters thick. Right. So to me, that's that's just backwards. Like it shows that these manufacturers have the capability, they have the expertise to be able to make these, you know, highly complicated um, watches at ultra thin or thin, you know, case sizes. But then when it comes to their standard offerings, you know, their, their entry level pieces. Now, you know, for some reason, that's not a priority for them. A watch that's, you know, 41 millimeters by 11 millimeters thick is, is, you know, quite sizable. I would say that that's probably, you know, on the upper end of a watch that I would consider wearing. But something that's maybe 8.5 is a lot more uh, feasible.
2: Yeah, I think that, uh, and I think you need to talk to a director of production to really get the the truth of this. But I think that... um with these entry-level three-handers a lot of times they are kind of bread and butter for brands like they provide a lot of the of not just the revenue but a lot of the profit and so they need to be made in relatively large volumes and they need to not be too difficult to make you know a perpetual calendar can be assembled by a much more limited number of watchmakers compared to three-handers and ultra-thin movements uh it's the same thing like it is definitely harder to assemble an ultra-thin movement compared to a uh compared to a normal thickness movement so i think that trying to maximize volume based on the production skill available is something that brands take into consideration
1: right so you know maybe it's interesting to think about how much of the you know current situation that we find ourselves in with you know all these watches that we might consider to be, you know, on the large size, you know, on the large side, you know, 41, 42, 44 millimeters. How much of that is because of this limitation that you just described, which is that brands are basically constrained or are deciding to, you know, make these sizes based on the set of watchmakers or the competency or the ease of production uh, or the cost of production or trying to make watches to a certain price point. Right. I think when it's
2: definitely a huge consideration. I think it's definitely a huge consideration. And this is something that that used to happen a lot, right, is brands would make a movement uh, and it might be a little difficult, it might be a little fiddly to make. And then uh, during the warranty period, it would end up coming back for repairs and it would end up coming back for repairs sufficient in number of times for the brand to lose money on it. And this is a really common problem. And this is why there was a period where a lot of brands had huge financial problems because they couldn't account for just how many times a watch might come back to be repaired. Uh, so it became much more of a priority to create like, very robust and reliable movements, even at the expense of like making it a
1: bit bigger. And you're talking about coming back to re- for repairs, like maybe it under warranty or something like that, where there was some yes Because obviously under warranty, it it's,
2: it's the responsibility of the brand.
1: Right, exactly. And yeah. if really- you imagine mm-hmm.
2: when a watch comes back for repair, it means that your watchmaker is also off of the production line to repair this thing. So not right. only are you losing money having to like repair a watch you've already sold, you're also losing money because you're reducing your ability to produce new watches.
1: Right. Yeah. And I mean, and on that topic, I mean, I think we used to also see. I mean, I don't know. I don't have any figures to back this up, but I feel like more brands used to sort of make these movements at smaller sizes and then use those same movements in larger case sizes, right? So, tr- larger cases. So, trying to, you know, because uh, you, you can do that, but you can't do the opposite. You can't take a bigger movement and then make it into a smaller case. And totally. so maybe. Um, you know, there were there were some issues with this, right? It wasn't perfect. There were some criticisms of, you know, certain designs, um, for example, for paddock where like, basically, they had because they were constrained by the size of the movement in a larger case, like the position of the date window looked really awkward. And they would yes. have to do things with like the chapter ring or stuff like that to try to make it look more visually. Yes. Um, appealing. Right. Um, so so maybe, you know, by in, in making movements larger, Right for this, you know, robustness and to reduce this cost, like you talked about, you know, they, they brands thought, okay, we're also solving this issue of having to um, try to design larger cases around smaller movements. Maybe we just stop making smaller watches altogether. Just commit to bigger movements. They're easier to make. They're less li- uh, less likely to fail, and they're going to look better on larger watches, which is what people want, anyways, according to their research, or you know, what the prevailing sentiment was maybe like 10, 20, 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it, totally. Charles, I know you talked about the 5726. I was looking at the specs for this watch. So it's 40.5 millimeters across, 11.3 millimeters thick, water resistant to 120 meters. The JLC, by comparison, is 40 millimeters across, 12 millimeters thick, and 50 meters water resistant. And I'm curious if between the two you would express a strong preference for one over the other based either on size or thickness. This might be a good segue for us to talk about case thickness actually.
1: Right, and and not even just about case thickness, but like about some idea of wearability, right? There's many metrics that come into wearability and even then you right. cannot necessarily capture um, really what it means for a watch to be wearable, right? So the basics is you have case diameter, case thickness, lug to lug, lug width, right? Those are your four primary dimensions. Um, you might also look at things like, you know, the shape of the case, maybe the curvature of the lugs, maybe uh, if you're really getting technical, maybe like the volume of the watch or the surface area of the watch. But I think that you can't necessarily take watches that have the same dimension on paper and assume that they're going to wear the same on the wrist. Right. And, and, you know, I haven't seen that JLC in person, nor have I actually seen the, you know, 5726 uh, Nautilus in person. But my perception is that the Nautilus would wear a lot better um, because of the shape of the case, because that 40.5 millimeters is accounting for these, you know, large sort of the large flanks on the side of the Nautilus case. And actually, the dial would be smaller. Um, and then my issue with the JLC, again, I haven't seen it in person, but just from the pictures, it just looks like a very blocky case, right? The, lu- uh, not the lugs, the, these flanks of the case, like the sides of the case sort of pull straight down. So the dial is really like, you know, the, the bezel, I guess, is really like the full 40 millimeters, whereas that might not be the case um, with the Nautilus. And I think just you know, from a aesthetic standpoint, personally, I just think the Nautilus looks better. Um, so you're, you're ruining again, Hamza's I
2: dreams. I can see him crying as you as you're just yeah, like railing I'm... on his watch. Sorry, Hamza. <laughs> I love that watch. I think it's awesome.
0: Thanks, thanks,
1: Mark. <laughs> and I don't know. I, I could be completely wrong. Like again, I haven't seen that watch in person. Forty millimeters for me, honestly, is still if if it's like a chunky forty millimeters, it's still on sort of the large end of what. I would want, I think that, you know, a, a more curvy case, thinner 40 millimeters is a really good size, like the Octo Finissimo is another great example of this, actually, where, you know, the Octo Finissimo is a 40 millimeter watch, but because of the Octo case, and I think this is an example where the thinness actually hurts the wearability of the watch for some reason. So you know the case, the case almost is like a square, right? The 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 octo, it's it's an eight sided case, and so the vault, the just the you know area of the case is a lot larger, and then the thinness for some reason actually makes it wear larger. I tried on the um, octo, not Finissimo, I don't believe, but it's the Octo World Timer, um, and I think that watch is also forty millimeters or forty one millimeters, but it actually just wore a lot better. Um, just because the case was more curvy, right? The case sort of curved down more. It sat better on the wrist. Uh, uh, on The wrist, um, the finissimo, for some reason, is really like, it just feels so rigid because it's, I, I think for some reason, because it's so thin, because it's so wide, um, it just really feels very, very rigid on the wrist. Whereas, you know, something like the World Timer wears better for me personally. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an interesting idea to try to capture this, you know, concept of wearability, right? You have to look at maybe all the dimensions, but then, you know, maybe there's some, some other factors at play. And of course, just this, you know, not just the, the shape of the wrist, right? Like you can't just measure a wrist based on its uh, circumference because there's a question of, you know, how tall is the wrist? How wide is the wrist? You know, that's going to affect what is as good lug to lug, you know, for you. So it's really, you know, a very complicated question. And I don't know when that, whether, whether, whether that's one that we'll ever be able to define, like, you know, quantitatively
2: so i there are you're absolutely right there are a ton of factors and the thing is honestly nothing on paper is ever gonna be as good as just going and trying it on you know it's so 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 important to see the watch in the metal in person on your body Uh, and size aside also just the style of the watch might not suit you at all you know, and if this is a watch that you want to wear all the time, it needs to suit you personally. Um, this is something that I, I talk to my customers about all day long. Like there's no such thing as an ideal or a best. There's just stuff that is appropriate for you, not appropriate for you. And that is not just limited to size. It's also limited to style as well, like to aesthetic, to look, you know, like I maybe I could wear a Richard Mille but it's not really my style to wear Richard Mille, so I don't think I ever would.
0: Mark, right. is size a consideration at all for the watches that uh, you carry at the Armory? How do you think about size as a consideration for for that set of watches?
2: At the Armory, we stock Grand Seiko and we stock Nomos. Um, and we try to stock things that are to our taste, but also we will stock things that are just kind of best sellers, right? That's, that's how we operate. So for Grand Seiko, for instance, we always try to keep things like the Snowflake in stock. But at the same time, like when there are 34, 36 millimeter watches available, we always try to keep those in stock as well. And similarly for Nomos, like the Tango Mat, the automatic tangentes with the date on it are super nice. They're a little big for me, but I think they're awesome. So, of course, I'd stock that. But at the same time, I also stock 33, 34, 35, 36 millimeter smaller um tangentes uh and um god what's the other model i forget anyway the point is like it's always going to be a the mix orion. of like our, uh yes the orion and, and there's another one too um the diving one ahoy the small ahoy is great too Ahoy, no yeah. um and the club the club's also another small one um but anyway the point is like it's always a balance of of what our tastes are and what we think uh are going to be financially viable and successful
1: Right. I mean, you know, and you, like you mentioned, you know, that seems like it's very much in line with, you know, what your what your audiences, you know, might prefer based on, you know, what you've been hearing about all this about, like, you know, my wrist is too small. I think it's interesting. I'm curious, like, from you guys individual tastes, right? Like, how do you perceive sort of the, the difficulty of finding watches? that you're interested in that fit you well. Um, Because my, I I guess I can just share a little bit about my preferences. First, I I like sports watches. I like watches on bracelets. I like watches that are, you know, um, robust. So I'm not a huge fan of dress watches, uh, which I know, Mark, you know, you probably are. Um, So when it comes to my options for what I'm looking for to buy, I think it's really difficult for me to find wearable watches that are still sporty water resistant you know come on a bracelet and stuff like that i think especially when you then look at complications which i'm also interested in that's that's sort of the challenge Mm. um but is that experience different for someone who is you know looking at you know dress watches or vintage watches what do you feel about sort of the Landscape of the watches that are out there are—is there a lot of stuff that you know you, that appeals to you and you think is wearable, or do you think there's some gap in the market?
2: Um, on a personal level, especially having done this survey and having some actual sense of the average wrist size in the world, I know that I'm below average by quite a bit, and so I don't really expect anything in the marketplace to be suitable for me. And I would say probably 90 to 95% of what I see on the market is like, I like it, it's just not for me. Like I don't even need to consider it. I like to look at it, I think it's cool, but I don't even need to think about pulling out my credit card and trying to figure out how to get it.
1: What about you Hamza?
0: I keep a spreadsheet where I track a bunch of random metrics about my watches. And so while Mark was talking, I was looking up to see if I could pull up a summary by Uh, case size and I realize I do a poor job of keeping data because half of them are just missing the case size (laughs) but for the ones but for the ones where I do have case sizes you know the the vast majority are under 39 millimeters I think that tracks with my personal with how I would describe my personal preferences Mark when you were talking about Nomos I remembered the first mechanical watch I ever bought for myself was a Nomos Club and that I believe was a that was a 38 millimeter watch. And I think it, I, I'm glad that that was the first one I ever bought because it was a very interesting sort of midway point between the the 36s and the 40s and the 40 pluses of the world to be like, oh, I could maybe go a little bit bigger than this. And no, oh, I could maybe go a little bit smaller than this. And since then, I've bought bigger watches like a, you know, a, a Speedmaster Professional, which is 42 millimeters or... Uh, you know, I've I've thirty uh, 36 millimeter watches like the Explorer one from Rolex. Mm. And each one of those, as you wear it and appreciate it for what it is, you kind of understand why those watches are the sizes that they are. Um, mm. I personally did not much care for the 39 millimeter uh, Explorer because it always felt like there was too much negative space in that watch to me, even after they fixed the dial. And when they brought it back to 36, it just seemed like, Oh, it was it was fine the first time you didn't have to mess with it. I'm glad it's back. It's back the way it is. Now I actually feel like I want to buy it. And mm. I I found that the smaller the watch case, the easier it is to wear like you described and even just like you look down at your wrist and you realize especially if it's just a three-hander or a three-hander and a date or maybe a, even a power reserve, you really don't need a watch that's bigger than around 36 to 38 millimeters to convey that level of information. You need a bigger di- dial if you know you're going to have a dense amount of information that you're imparting. So, with complications, I think it makes sense. With just you know time and date only watches or watches with just very very few complications, I think my general preference has been, and you know the watches that I've collected reflect a preference for for, for smaller sizes
2: actually that brings up an interesting point i remember reading um some interviews with uh with Thierry stern um who's kind of been in charge of the the patek collection for for a while now and one of his reasons for upsizing a lot of pateks is legibility right he's like our customers can't read those perpetual calendars at 36 millimeters anymore so we made them bigger so that you can is see that a, it better. Is that a
0: commentary? Is that a commentary on paddocks demographics, customer demographics? Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, look, as you get
2: older, you typically get wealthier as and you want to buy a nice watch, but obviously you need to be able to see it, right? Otherwise, it's also pretty frustrating, too. But, you know, at the same time, you can also make the argument, well, they were making 34 to 36 millimeter perpetual calendars for decades from 1900s to 2000s and People seemed to be okay with it. So the legibility thing, I I can't tell if it's if it's ac- if it's an accurate argument or not. Like I can't tell if it. I don't know if it's a convincing argument to me or not. Sorry, that's what I should have meant. So um you know we've like this has been a great discussion with you guys and you and and we were chatting a little bit before the podcast even started too. I do really want to do the V two the survey. I do actually need to make it a yearly thing, and I just have been procrastinating and been busy with other stuff. Um, I think that one of the big questions I would love to answer now is, uh, given that there are definitely a lot of new collectors that have suddenly cropped up over the last two years, um, how different are their tastes from people who have been collecting for many years? And the other thing is, we kind of have like a new class of collector, which is collecting for investment. Um, And do they have preferences at all? Or is or is what they purchase purely based on potential growth of, uh, of value,
1: right? But I, th- I think I said actually, that's collect, that's, that's connected, though. Um, because, I mean, in my view, so there's sort of, there's always this, like, spectrum of, you know, collecting for enjoyment versus collecting for investment, right, you have extremists on either end, and I think most people are somewhere in the middle, um, where they have to find a good balance between the practical ownership cost and uh value retention and then how much they actually enjoy the watch but my view has has sort of been that i think that the investment sort of the watch investment audience or maybe community if you if you want to call it that the value that is that that these watches have you know the investment potential the value is grounded upon the enthusiast audience, right? Without the enthusiast audience, to me, watches are basically just like crypto, like there's no intrinsic value. Because everyone's just buying crypto to make money. If everyone just buy watches, buys watches to make money, then watches, I think are not going to have value. So if the enthusiast community is what grounds the value for watches, then I think that, you know, again, the question of wearability, the question of case size um, is important, because that, that community of enthusiasts, of hardcore collectors, hardcore enthusiasts is, you know, needs to find watches that they're interested in that are wearable, right? You know, all these watches that are the flagship sort of investment watches, they're all pretty reasonable sizes, right? You know, the Royal, the Royal Oak, the Nautilus. Um, Can Sub- either
0: of so- you think of a popular watch that is not comfortable to wear?
1: I mean, there used to be some, like there was like the AP, you know, offshores, right? Those have sort of, the hype for those has died a lot over the last couple of years. But I remember like, you know, certain models like the Bumblebee or there was like, I think like the LeBron James model that was pretty popular. I don't remember, although that was limited edition. So I'd say the offshore is one that, you know, used to be popular and is now dying. Um, The, of course, like Mark mentioned earlier, right? right? But yeah, at least in the current, situation, it seems like most of the stuff that's popular is pretty wearable, you know, maybe like 41 millimeters and below.
2: So I've got an alternative take on this. I think that the market is, I think the market is purely driven by the number of people active in it. And I think that the number of people active in the market has grown massively because all of a sudden people are just like oh, watches are a thing that I can spend my disposable income on, you know. Whereas previously that disposable income might have been allocated something else. Watches, for various reasons, have kind of gone top of mind and taken up people's attention, and it's become a thing now. And um, I think that this, this, this base, at a very basic macro level, this base of people is still relatively small compared to the numbers of people who buy like other types of luxury goods so i think that the the value of watches will definitely increase like regardless of model or regardless of style or any of those nuances actually just the fact that the base is small and is set to grow means that inevitably everything is just going to get more expensive
1: right so then why do you think that the base is growing
2: because it wasn't that big in the first place
1: right but then what would be trigger that a small base a base being small doesn't necessarily mean that it will grow definitively right there has to be some sort of trigger in terms of taste.
2: Mm, yeah i see what you're saying it has gone from being this niche hobby to mainstream thing and do mainstream things ever fall back into being niche things i don't think it happens that often i think the chance of it remaining a mainstream thing is is far greater And it's not even mainstream, mainstream yet, you know.
1: Right. I mean, my perception is that one of the big reasons that it has become more mainstream is because of the investment prospect. And so that's why I compare it to crypto, meaning like if everyone's in it just to make money, then that is not sustainable, then long term that will collapse. If if everyone's buying a watch just with the expectation that they can sell it more to the next guy, right? Which is a lot of the factors in the market that I think in the watch market that I think we've seen over the last you know year or two years and stuff that drove you know crypto and NFTs, um, then there will be a tipping point where you know suddenly there's no longer consumer confidence. So that's why I said that the confidence comes from that collector base, the hardcore enthusiast base that buys watches because they like them. Now, I also do believe that that audience is growing. Um, And I have some theories that I can get into about why that is. But um, I do agree that that audience is getting bigger. I think even when you take out the people that are buying for investment, the audience of hardcore enthusiasts is still larger today than than what it was three years ago. But but I don't know, I guess I don't know if that is going to continue. And if it doesn't continue. Then. I I guess this is this is going back to what to what I was saying about, like, you know, the watch, the the popular watches being um, the ones that are wearable. If people just start buying, you know, any watch with the expectation of, of appreciation and uh, for investment purposes, and there's not that enthusiast base that actually loves that watch, that's going to you know, wear that watch no matter what the value retention is, then I don't necessarily think that those watches are going to continue to hold their value.
0: The other way of illustrating that is to say that there is no quote unquote investment worthy watch today that is not also an enthusiast darling.
1: It's only an investment watch because a hardcore set of enthusiasts loved it and now... And drove up like, and,
0: yeah. and created hype for it and drove up um, demand for it.
1: It's, it's like you know, like the, like the mid-2000s BMW M series. It's like the old Supras. You know, it's, there's always some hardcore enthusiast audience, I feel like, that, that needs to support the baseline value of these watches that are buying it or this, whatever it is that they're buying for the enjoyment, for the passion. And then there's some, you know, markup, there's some premium on top of that, which is driven by people who have now caught on to this. They're not necessarily interested in themselves, but are interested in the financials and have caught on to it and are now getting into it themselves. That's my perception. I don't know. I don't think that's, you know, the the only possibility, but that's just, I think, what I believe right now.
2: Because the hardcore enthusiast audience is always going to be a subset of the general audience who like watches. And that general audience is always growing so the hardcore audience will always grow too
1: i don't think the general audience is necessarily always growing though like my perception is maybe between like 2005 and 2015 it didn't really seem like it seemed like watches were dying right everyone you know for a long time people stopped wearing watches altogether because of smartphones and then smartwatches coming back, I think actually, you know, or being introduced actually helped more people get used to the idea of wearing a watch. But just totally my perception was that like, maybe from those years between like 2007 and 2015, like when smartphones first came out. And then when the between when the first smartphone came out and the first smartwatch came out, it just seemed like everyone sort of stopped wearing watches.
2: Well, I think the smartwatches thing is an important thing to bring up because people are buying watches in spite of having smartwatches already. You know, a lot of people who uh, there are definitely a lot more people who own Apple watches than people who own reversos. But there's actually also going to be a population people who own both. Right.
1: Right. And I I think the smartwatches are are good for watches overall. I've said this before because it just gets people open to the idea of wearing a watch again. You wear a smartwatch and you wear a luxury watch for very different reasons but I think you are much more open to buying and wearing a luxury watch if you're used to the idea of wearing a watch.
2: For sure. So doesn't this suggest that the market will just continue to grow? Like I'm drawing a linkage here between like the growth of smartwatches and the fact that people are still open to wearing something on their wrist. And then a percentage of those people who are open now to wearing something on their wrist are also gonna be open to wearing wearing a mechanical watch or a quartz watch.
1: Right, yeah, I, I definitely think that the enthusiast audience is growing, and the collector audience overall is growing. um, It's hard to separate how much of that is due to this new class of collector that's collecting for investment. But um, yeah, I I do think that I do believe that long term watches will continue to get more popular. Um, I think one of the big reasons for that is just because I think the world is getting more and more disposable. And You know, there's this sort of... Mm, It's a cultural shift. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Like people respect things that last longer.
1: Right. For for conservation, for, you know, environmentalism and yeah, watches are sort of part of that in that watches are, you know, luxury watches are these things that are produced and meant to last, you know, forever, right? Hundreds of years, right? They're not meant to just be this quick thing that is then thrown away.
2: By the way, I have an interesting little factlet related to what we were talking about. So I was at the Citizen Museum at Citizens Headquarters um, in in Tokyo and um, when I was looking at all of their old models, you know, it's really clear when quartz watches kind of came into being and they started off as like a luxury watch but eventually they were they were they evolved into mass market watches, which is what they were always meant to be. Right. And what's really interesting about the quartz revolution in Japan was electronics makers suddenly realized they could be watchmakers too. So even people like Panasonic were actually making watches, whereas previously that was like a line of business. They never did, but the quartz revolution opened up the doors for more companies to get into that space.
1: I mean, Apple is now like the largest watchmaker in the world by volume, right? (laughs) yeah it's crazy to think about
0: yeah no i was going to say they make watches that are 40 millimeters and 44 millimeters just hideously bulbous looking things um from from the side but it's interesting what they've done with their sizes because they started out since we are talking about them, I guess we can talk about their sizes too. They they started out with thirty-eight and forty-two, and then they went to forty and forty-four, but didn't change necessarily the the case size; just increased the um, portion of the case that was dedicated to the display itself. And um, you know, it's it, it's interesting that you can introduce greater density of information that way, as opposed to just you know throwing more um, throwing more information into the pixels you already
1: have. So so I'm not super knowledgeable about this. like, can you clarify? You're saying that the size of the case actually didn't change, but they're, what they're measuring is the size of the display, and the display just got bigger? Uh,
0: I think I may be wrong about this, actually. I think the case size changed, but the case size change was not as significant as the increase in screen size. So right. the screen size increased proportionally much larger because they were able to take the glass out. Further to the edge, um, you you know, in in all directions, and then put more pixels under it. And I think they also increased pixel density in subsequent versions. So they've done, you know, they've done what what they do, which is with each iteration of the product, um, make it a little bit better. But I hope they can do something to make it uh, thinner as well. I don't know that talking about Apple Watches is necessarily the best place where we would have wanted to end this discussion, but. (laughs)
1: I mean, I I do have one more point, though, on that, which is I think that when it comes to smartwatches and also like smartphones, I think wearability is less of a factor. I think that for that type of audience, people are more willing to sacrifice the comfort because it is a practical, you know, utilitarian tool. If they can get more information um, that's valuable to them or, you know, more legibility uh, in that screen, then I think that a lot of people would be willing to sacrifice the comfort, the size, the wearability of the watch. I think this is the same trend that we've seen with smartphones, right? Smartphones have gotten huge lately in the last you know, five years. And this, I know we're so off topic now, but just <laughs> humor me for a minute, right? Like smartphones have gotten so big and I see, you know, I'm pretty tall. I'm like six two and I have relatively larger hands and I, use an iPhone 13 mini and I think that's a good size. I can't I don't understand like I can't get these people that are, you know, like with smaller hands that are using like the, you know, maxes, like the Pro Maxes with like, you know, six inch screens that are almost like tablets. Um, I just think, but when, I think, man, it's
2: because I'm it's, totally with you on that. I'm so yeah. on the same page.
0: My but sister, just, you're, you're uh, six foot two, you're six foot two and you're using a mini. My sister is five foot two and she uses a 13 Pro Max. Right,
1: right. But when I it's, see people do it, I think it's it's just because of the practicality, right? Like they want, like maybe they're older and they want the larger font size or they just want, you know, something that, you know, they, they can really get all that information. In. And for them, it's not, it's not that important, you know, the form factor yeah. as long as they can get the information.
0: The other thing with Apple, of course, is that when you go to the Pro Max, that's where you get the, the top of the line cameras, which you can't get with, with the Mini. So I guess that's the analog to saying if you want the grand complication with the supersonary and the perpetual calendar and the triple split, then you have to go bigger and thicker uh, in case right. size. And that's just kind of the nature of, of the thing. So anyway, that's, that's where we'll wrap it because we have to wrap somewhere. Mark, thank you so oh, much I for joining. Th- I got two things I want to bring up.
2: Oh, second,
0: second false ending. All right, let's do this. This
2: is this is the encore nobody wanted. Um, So you know, at the beginning of the episode, you asked about watches that we're all kind of obsessing over. So the watches I'm obsessing over right now is I'm trying to find myself a minute repeater. Right, I've I just love the complication. I think it's super interesting. Um, The Patek thirty nine seventy four is probably one of the greatest watches ever made ever. It's an incredible piece. Um, but I am actually interested, uh, sorry, the 3974 is a perpetual calendar minute repeater. Um, but I'm actually interested in time only minute repeaters, which used to be a thing and are still sort of a thing, but less and less, um, over the years, they've gotten much bigger. Like everybody's really interested in how loud it can chime. Um, and part of the loudness is related to, uh, the size of the case. Um, but I've been on the hunt for like small but beautiful minute repeaters, and they are—they are actually out there, and they're quite underpriced for what they are. Um, AP makes these John Schaefer cushion cases, uh, and they made a couple of repeater versions of those. Those are super interesting. Blancpain also had some really interesting small little 34 millimeter minute repeaters. Um, oh, there's another one too. Breguet made some great 36 millimeter minute, 36 millimeter minute repeaters. Um, but actually, if I had the money. The one I really want to see in person is Patek made one called the 7,000. The 7,000 was a ladies minute repeater in 34 millimeter size. The movement fills up literally the entire case. uh, And the people I've spoken to who have seen it and handled it are like, it was one of the best watches Patek ever made. So I'm really hoping one day in future, I can scrape together the money and find one of these damn pieces and own one Patek 7,000. All right. That's one thing I want to get out of the way. The other thing I wanted to just I'm hoping we can close this episode on just to hijack your whole episode is, you know, everybody, I'm sure a lot of your um, listenership is focused on kind of like the financial value, like not necessarily because they want to invest, but because they kind of want to know what they're able to buy next. Right. And obviously, like if something you like also happens to be affordable, that's awesome but if something you like has to be climbing rapidly in price you probably want to jump on it before it exceeds your exceeds your um your budget um certainly like a lot of my personal purchases in the last two years have been driven by this sense of like shit if i don't get it now i might never be able to get it right um but i would say to any new collector uh who has gotten into it recently go and seek out those smaller watches and try them on buy a couple of you can and wear them around because i think it will open your eyes and i think you will find way more interesting bargains out there as a result than if you focus on just like modern catalogs in larger sizes
0: there is nothing there that i don't agree with so on that note <laughs> unless we have unless we have a third false ending uh uh thanks again Mark for joining. Uh as always you can check us out at watcharts.com. We're on Instagram, we're on YouTube. You can find Mark online at um markshow.com on Instagram and the armory is at the t h e a r m o u r y.com and we'll catch you next time.